And this is Hebrews 2020. And this will be a part five of a series within our exegesis of Hebrews. And it will be Yesun Ton Huion Tu Theu, Jesus the Son of God. The fifth part, and this is increment 114 in our series called We See Jesus, Hebrews 2020. In our last increment, we left off under the observation that we have come to Hebrews, both through John's Gospel and the epistles of Paul, as well as Revelation. And we began a kind of exposition on Hebrews 4.14, and it reads this way, Therefore, having a great archpriest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, there it is, Jesus, the Son of God, right there in that phrase is the gist of our confession or the confession that he's telling his readers to hold fast to. His purpose is that they hold fast to the confession, which the gist of which is Jesus is the Son of God. He fortifies this momentum and the impetus to hold fast to this confession by telling them they have such a great high priest in the Son of God who has passed through the heavens. And so I refer you to the last message because this is kind of a follow-up on it and we're following on the same trail that we began to blaze in 113. We left off with the thought that neither John in his gospel, John being the beloved disciple, the author of the gospel of John, nor Paul in all of his epistles, both John and Paul accentuate and centralize the confession of Jesus as the Son of God. For example, John 20, 31, and as we saw, Romans 1, 4. But neither John nor Paul, John in his entire gospel, nor Paul in all of his epistles, ever spoke of a place called hell. Now this is where I deliberately want to cross swords with the viewpoint that is held by so many at this time in history that are called themselves Christians and that indeed are Christians. They become hellists and both preach and teach and have in their creeds the idea of hell as an eternal place of conscious, endless torment. But neither John in his gospel nor Paul in all his epistles spoke of a place called hell. Both of them spoke of perishing. Both of them spoke of the wrath of God. Neither man spoke of perishing or wrath in terms of a hell of eternal or everlasting conscious torment. Now the last time... I mentioned, I know what you're thinking, entering into a kind of an, a dialectic with an opponent, or an imagined opponent, I'm sure. And I know what is usually offered by the Hellists to defend their position that Paul did mention or did refer to an eternal hell or describe one in his writings. And they cite the passage in 2 Thessalonians 1, 8, and 9. But even the passage often cited by Hellists in 2 Thessalonians 1, 8, and 9, where Paul speaks of, quote, fiery vengeance on those who don't recognize God, or acknowledge him, that means, or obey the gospel, and who, quote, pay the penalty of eternal destruction coming from the presence, that word prosopon there means the face of the Lord. So what is this eternal destruction coming from the presence of the face 
of the Lord or the presence or the face of the Lord, the appearance of the Lord. At the appearance of the Lord, then these people who do not obey the gospel, these people who do not acknowledge God and therefore who are utterly faithless because if you're coming to God, you must believe, first of all, that he is, that he exists, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him, as Hebrews 11.6 says. And there's no way to please God except by faith. So what does it mean? Well, this from the face of God or from the presence of God is also found in Acts 3.19 where Peter said that the days of refreshment or the times better of refreshment will come from the presence or the face of the Lord. And this these times of refreshment are related to Acts 3.21, the restoration of all things. So the restoration of all things is connected with something that comes from the face of the Lord or the presence of the Lord. And if the presence of the Lord means a time of refreshment and the restoration of all things, that means all beings, then how can some be banished from his presence at his appearance forever? Well, that's just a question. I'm just putting it that way for now. So once again, those who pay the penalty of eternal destruction coming from the presence or the face of the Lord is actually speaking of a transformation that's connected with the times of refreshment that comes from the same presence or face of the Lord, Acts 3.19. And again, in the restoration of all things and of all beings in Acts 3.21, at that time, those who don't know and acknowledge God are destroyed. And they are destroyed in the process of becoming those who do come to know and to acknowledge him and confess that the Lord is Jesus. For to incorporate another verse here, Every tongue will acknowledge or confess, and that's our word from Hebrews 4.14. We hold fast to our confession of Jesus as Lord or Jesus as Son of God. Every tongue will confess that Yahweh is Yeshua, that the Lord is Jesus. Now, there are those who say that's a moment of coercion. If you don't confess him in this life, you will when he comes again, you'll be forced to. It doesn't say they're forced to. It doesn't say they're coerced into it. It says, in fact, Paul interprets that same passage in Romans 14:11 as their confession being one of praise, one of gladness and praise and joy. So, those people will not have been forced to confess him. They will be glad to confess their Savior, their Lord, the Son of God, Jesus. For every tongue will confess that the Lord is Jesus. It's in that order in the Greek text. So the fiery vengeance, what about the fiery vengeance? The fiery vengeance that what? Destroys those who disobey the gospel transforms the same sinners into those who do obey the gospel and benefit from the eternal salvation that was authored by Jesus Christ, whose obedience to the death of the cross secured rectification or justification for all and eternal life for all of humanity. Romans 5.18, 1 Corinthians 15.22, and confer also with Romans 6.23, where it says that the wages of sin is death, meaning for all, 
but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, meaning eternal life for all. It, just match up Romans 6.23 with 1 Corinthians 15.22 and then back up into Romans 5.18 and you'll find that justification and life are both gifts of God through Jesus Christ to all of humanity in all of its times without exception. In fact, that's all who sinned in Romans 3.23, having been redeemed in Christ Jesus in 3.24, by the grace of God justified, by grace, by grace, by grace. The phrase destroyed from the presence of the glory of his power in 2 Thessalonians 1, 8, 9, we're still there. Does not signify exclusion from God's presence or God's glory or God's power for that matter. It denotes transformation through contact with the glory of his power. God's glory is the glory of God's grace. Ephesians 1 6, we've been accepted or graced out in the beloved, forgiven in Christ to the praise of the glory of what? Of his grace. God's glory is the glory of his grace, Ephesians 1.6, and his power is ultimately transformative, not destructive. Just as his justice is ultimately creative and redemptive, not retributive. The translations that read excluded from the presence of the Lord, now, you can already see the guy who wrote that translation is a hellist. He's already influenced by the hell doctrine that he believes. Some people believe that if you don't believe in the hell doctrine, you're going there. They exalt the actual belief in a hell above the confession that Jesus is Lord. They think that that's more of an important tenet of faith than Jesus as the Son of God. They hold it with equal devotedness. Well, that's not only unspiritual, it's immoral to do that. The hell doctrine is an immoral doctrine as well as unspiritual. So the translations that read or imply excluded from the presence of the Lord or even say away from the presence of the Lord. Ignore that the preposition apo used there, A-P-O, apo, in the phrase from the glory of his power is the same preposition, apo, that's used in 2 Thessalonians 1-2, the same chapter, where Paul wrote, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. From, apo, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace. That's a greeting that appears in many of Paul's epistles. In that customary greeting, grace and peace comes from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't push people away, it draws them near. Grace and peace don't come away from him. Nor does grace and peace that comes from the Lord Jesus Christ banish us away from him. The destruction, and there is a destruction here. The destruction, we could almost call it an act of violence. The destruction that comes from the glory of his power destroys the false selves of those who refuse to acknowledge 
God, their creator, and of those who disobey the gospel of God, their savior. What's destroyed is the false self, also known as Ephesians 4.22, the old anthropos, palaios anthropos, paleo man, the old man who is deceitful and therefore false. Moreover, the preposition apo, prepositions are very important in the scriptures, is used in 1 Corinthians 1.30, where the apostle says, but from him, apo, from him, you are in Christ Jesus. From whom? From God. From God, you are in Christ Jesus. That means that God is the source of our solidarity and life in Christ Jesus. To translate the phrase, away from him, you are in Christ Jesus, would be absurd. In fact, to be in Christ is to be in Christ in God. You died and your life is hid with Christ in God. Colossians 3.3. Again, for you died and your life is hid with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory Colossians 3, 3, and 4. And as Jesus said in John 14, 20, in that day, you'll know that I'm in my Father. I am in my Father. And you in me, and I in you. Now that means that we are in him who is in the Father, and that we are therefore in Christ, in God in God the Father. In addition to this passage in 2 Thessalonians that we briefly examined, we have another reference to God's wrath in 1 Thessalonians 2.15 and 16, where it says of those who, quote, killed the Lord Jesus. Now you say, no, but, but what, what do you mean? No man ever took Jesus' life. True. But murder is in the intent. The criminal intent is what they're talk what Paul is talking about here. No man killed Jesus. He laid his life down and he takes it back again in resurrection. John ten, sixteen to eighteen. But when he says killed the Lord Jesus, it means that there are people, men mostly, leaders in Jerusalem, for example who killed the Lord Jesus because their criminal intent was in their statement, crucify him, crucify him, away with him, away with him. John 19, 15. We have no king but Caesar, etc. So Paul says, those who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and persecuted us, And they're preventing the gospel from getting around to the Gentiles. That's, they're doing all these things. And Paul said, don't worry that God's wrath has come upon them completely. Or God, God's wrath has overtaken them totally. Paul doesn't mean there that they've gone to hell. The wrath of God has overtaken them completely and they're still alive. They haven't gone to hell. If that was what Paul intended to say, he surely fail, failed to say it very well and clearly. And Paul is very much about saying things plainly and clearly as 2 Corinthians 3.12 and as all his epistles indicate. It refers first to the fact, that is, wrath coming upon them to the full, it refers first to the fact that in the cross, in Christ crucified, even the sins of those who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and who persecuted Paul and his fellow missionaries 
and who displeased God through unbelief, their sins were also judged. Father, forgive them. Who? Those who killed the Lord Jesus. That's who. Those who killed the prophets. That's who. Those who persecuted Paul. That's who. Those who displeased God through unbelief. That's who. Paul and his fellow missionaries and those whose displeasing of God through unbelief all were once who, those who did not believe. Second, that the wrath of God has come upon these men completely means that their sinfulness has reached a critical mass and would and did result in the judgments of the year A.D. 70, which was a fiery judgment in fact. Now, I'm going to use Thomas Talbot again. His book, The Inescapable Love of God, is kind of a little masterpiece, and I think it's even been rewritten or revised a second time. I haven't read the second revision. But Thomas Talbot is helpful once again. Remember, this is a theological exegesis of Hebrews, and so I'm corralling a lot of good theologians. Thomas Talbot is helpful in our exegesis here as he employs the theological functional specialty of interpretation to the concept of the destruction of the false self, which I view to be the subject of 2 Thessalonians 1, 8, and 9, as well as 1 Thessalonians 2, 15, and 16, as well as many other wrath and perishing passages. And for our purposes, it's the self, the false self, is simply the self who refuses to acknowledge God or believe the gospel. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, your essential reality is Jesus Christ. You no longer live, but Christ lives in you, and you now live by the faithfulness of the Son of God. That's what a Christian is. And usually it takes us many years to get to that place of maturity and confession. But a false self does not have Jesus, the Son of God, as its basic reality. That's the self that gets destroyed when transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. It's been said that those people who are in heaven, none of them want to come back here. It also should be said that when people will have been transformed into the image of Jesus Christ, none of them will want to go back to their false selves. So the second thing that it means, then, is that the wrath of God is the transformation of the false self, or really that's the third thing. So again, here's Thomas Talbot. He deals with the destruction of the false self as a matter of perspective. And he writes this, from the perspective of those already crucified in Christ, and to that I would say, of those who acknowledge that they've been crucified with Christ, Romans 6, 6, Galatians 2, 20, that's me. But Talbot writes it this way. From the perspective of those already crucified in Christ, the destruction of the false self is clearly a good thing. Hold on to that thought, a good thing. It is liberation salvation itself. But from the perspective of those who continue to cling to the false self, its destruction will be a fearsome thing. It will seem like the very destruction of themselves. They will encounter their God as a consuming fire. And they will experience his opposition to the false self as wrath and fury. For one way or another, God will destroy the false self 
and will destroy it forever. Now, I'll go so far as to say that the destruction of the false self is one of the good things that have already come with Christ, the great archpriest. The great archpriest has come, says Hebrews 9.11. There's a 9.11 for you. The great archpriest has come, and with him has already come good things. The great archpriest of good things to come. The Byzantine text, which is usually reflected in the King James, for example, says good things yet to come, ton melanton. But the Nestle Allen text, the one that I use probably first, I also use the Byzantine, but the Nestle Allen text says things that have already come. So I would go so far as to say that the destruction of the false self is one of the good things that have already come with Christ, the great archpriest, in Hebrews 9.11. And as such, it's one of the good things which the gospel of God about his son announces. Isaiah 52.7, Romans 1.1-4, and 10.15. So, it's a good thing. It's a good thing that we're already risen together with him. It's a good thing that we died with him, together with him. That we were crucified because the false self was destroyed forever then. It's a good thing that we've already been risen together with him in Colossians 2.12 and 3.1 in one sense. And that we were made new in him in 2 Corinthians 5.17, created in him anew in Ephesians 2.10 and 4.24. But we will yet experience this good thing and this new self when the bodily resurrection occurs in the context of the restoration of all things at the second appearance of Jesus Christ. Philippians 3.20-21, Hebrews 9.28, Acts 3.19-21, etc. Second, 1 Thessalonians 1.10. So when Talbot speaks of the destruction of the false self as a fearsome thing, and of encountering God as a consuming fire, we're reminded of the warning issued by the PT who wrote Hebrews to those who go on sinning willfully, and that means living in their false selves, after having received the knowledge of the truth, and therefore the knowledge of their true selves. Consider Hebrews 10, 26 to 27. For if we willingly go on sinning after receiving the knowledge of the truth, the idea here is, again, if we continue in the false self after receiving the knowledge of the truth and the knowledge, therefore, of who we are as to our true selves in Christ, there no longer remains a sin sacrifice that can be offered for us. But only the fearsome expectation of judgment and the fury of the fire that is about to eat up the adversaries, devour or consume the adversaries. There's an allusion here to both Zechariah 1.18 and Isaiah 26.11. And in Hebrews 10.31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Again, it's a matter of perspective. Living in the false self, there's a fearsome expectation of the consuming fire and the fiery vengeance, as it were, that will transform the false self into the true self, and in so doing, destroy the false self, but preserve the true self. And on top of all these verses, of course, there's Hebrews 12, 29. Our God is a consuming fire. So indeed, from the perspective of the person who insists on clinging, clinging, to the old, 
holding fast, we could say, to the old deceitful self in Ephesians 4.22, the prospect and this expectation and prospect is terrifying. The alternative is to cling, however, to the testimony of Jesus as the Son of God. Isn't that much better? Cling to the testimony. Hold fast to the testimony of Jesus as the Son of God. And that testimony implies our false selves having been crucified with him. This is all wrapped up in Galatians 2.20. I was crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. And yet not I, but Christ lives in me. In the life that I now live, I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God, or literally, I live within the sphere of and in participation with the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I don't frustrate the grace of God. So, that's 22.21, incidentally. We must remember that this PT, and I refer to the teaching pastor who wrote Hebrews, is a master of exhortation as well as of the exposition of the scriptures. He's a master. And his exhortation is brilliantly balanced, and it's a brilliantly balanced blend of negative and positive spiritual incentive. Negative and positive incentives gives a one-two punch to this homily. The balance of exposition and exhortation, on the other hand, is manifested in microcosm in Hebrews 4, 13, and 14. Let me say that again because this really gets Hebrews in toto. It gets the whole of the book in sum, in summation. Negative and positive incentives give a one-two punch to the homily and the balance of exposition or teaching and exhortation or encouragement and warning, we could say, is manifested in microcosm. The whole epistle is manifested in microcosm in Hebrews 4.13 and its segue into 4.14. The sobering prospect that we must give an account to God in Hebrews 4.13 is balanced by the comforting thought that we have a great archpriest who has passed through the heavens where he now appears in the presence of God for us, for us. The great archpriesthood of Jesus, therefore, advances the doctrine of divine promeity. We've studied that in some length at Roman, in Romans. Promeity, the doctrine of divine promeity. We first discovered it in Romans. Divine promeity, P-R-O-M-E-I-T-Y, means that God is for us, all caps, F-O-R-U-S, for us, pro-me. He is for you. Promeity. In fact, it means more than that. It means that there is no God but God for us. There is no God except for God for us. For us. And with us in mind. He did not spare his son, his unique son, his only eternally begotten son, his sinless son, his impeccable son. For us, he did not spare his son. For us, he handed him over to bear our sins. For us, God made Jesus to be sin. He who knew no sin. For us and for our justification, God raised Jesus from the dead. Now for us, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, whom God brought 
up out of the realm of the dead. For us, he makes intercession from his position of supreme exaltation at the right hand of God. And we don't have a high priest, though glorious as he is at the right hand of the Father. He knows and sympathizes with our weaknesses. He suffers with us. He's not above us in a glory that isn't touched by what we're going through down here. He makes intercession from his position of supreme exaltation at the right hand of God. When we finally give an account, therefore, when we finally give an account, and the word is logos in Hebrews 4.13, guess what will happen? When we finally give an account to God, Jesus, the logos, will be standing by as our advocate and as the propitiation, expiation for our sins. So the believing that both Paul and John speak of has to do with the internal assurance and the external affirmation. That's the confession, the external affirmation that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus as the Son of God, in turn, is a profession of Jesus' divinity. An acknowledgement of his uniqueness as a man who is also God as God, who is also the man Christ Jesus. As such, Jesus is the sole mediator, S-O-L-E, sole and only, mediator between God and humankind. Now, in the era of the Roman Empire, when this epistle was written, this homily proclaimed, this posed a problem. Because Caesar had been accorded that honor, the honor of Son of God, beginning with Caesar Augustus. In fact, Rome was called the Fatherland, and Caesar was the father of the Fatherland when Hebrews 11 talks about those who were seeking a better Fatherland, the Father being the father of the Fatherland. So there was a problem because Caesar had been accorded that honor at the time and penalties were meted out to those who didn't profess or confess Caesar to be divine or even Caesar to be the Son of God. The exception was granted to Judaism under the stipulation that the priests offer a sacrifice to their God, Yahweh, for or on behalf of Caesar on a regular basis. We've studied that before. The leadership of Jerusalem, in cahoots with Rome at the time, considered the confession of Jesus as Son of God to be a blasphemy worthy of the death penalty. Both the Greco-Roman culture, therefore, and the Jewish subculture at the time were vehemently opposed to this confession of Jesus as Lord. So you can see the reticence on the part of some and maybe even empathize with the wavering of some of them at the time. But the profession or confession of Jesus as the Son of God was necessarily attached to the belief. And this is what Hebrew, where Hebrews goes from here. It was attached to the belief that his death on the cross constituted the final sacrifice for sins. The death of Jesus on the cross being the final, complete, and unrepeatable sacrifice for sins 
automatically ends the system of sacrifices that were designed to anticipate that sacrifice. Now the blade, as we've called it, the blade of the double-edged word of God that separates between soul and spirit is also distinguishing between the former system of sacrifices offered in the earthly tabernacle in the desert and then in the transference of that tabernacle to the temple in Jerusalem. That temple is being distinguished and the priesthood associated with it distinguished from a new order that was established by the once and for all and forever sacrifice of Christ that put away the sin of the world. So the salient theme of Hebrews, the archpriesthood of Jesus, the Son of God, was actually launched all the way back in Hebrews 1.3. So it's thematic, thematic all the way through. For in Hebrews 1.3 it says that the Son, who is named Jesus later in Hebrews 2.9, and again in 3.1 and 2, and again in 4.14, and again in 6.20, etc. The theme of his archpriesthood was actually launched in Hebrews 1.3, where the Son, in whom God spoke with definitive finality in these last days, is said to have made purification for sins. He's offered that atonement once and for all and was then elevated and exalted to the right side of the majesty in heaven. So Hebrews 4.14, which is our text verse, even though it seems like we've gotten off track, complements that truth with the declaration that Jesus, the Son of God, passed through the heavens. The priests who were offering sacrifices that can never take away sins and can never perfect the worshipers in their conscience to be worshipers, true worshipers of the Father in spirit and in truth. The priests who represented, again, the priests who were offering sacrifices that can never take away sins passed through the outer court of the tabernacle or the tent into the holy place and from the holy place through the veil into the place of utmost holiness to sprinkle the blood of the atoning sacrificial animals, the blood of others, against the mercy seat. And the high priest did that only once a year. Jesus passed through the heavens, having obtained not annual, but eternal redemption, not through the blood of others, but through his own blood. So now the continuity between Hebrews 4.12 and 13 into 4.14 is revealed. The word of God distinguishes soul from spirit so that the spirit of the readers can be completed for worship of God and orientated to a heavenly tabernacle occupied with a heavenly high priest one who has been tested in every way, as we're going to learn in 4.15, as we are in this world, yet without sin. He who knew no sin was made to be sin, so that we would be made the righteousness of God in him. We are now urged to approach the throne from which God dispenses the grace of by which our hearts are established and strengthened and to receive mercy and to find grace in the form of timely help whenever we need it. We do it for ourselves and for others. So in Hebrews 4.16, you can fire an arrow into 13.9 where the heart is strengthened by grace. You can also fire an arrow to Ephesians 3.16 and following where God pours strength into us, the strength of grace into our hearts. 
So to have the heart be strengthened and established in grace is to have the spirit of grace pour strength into our hearts. The spirit of grace is the spirit, and he's called that in Hebrews 10.29, the spirit of grace is the same spirit who makes the new covenant a reality in us. The new covenant, the better covenant, the everlasting covenant. He makes it real to us. In Ephesians, or rather Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27, compared with Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, which is discussed in Hebrews 8, and which is in the Septuagint of Jeremiah 38, 31 to 34. The new covenant. I will put my spirit in them and cause them to walk according to my statutes. Those statutes being love God and love one another. That's what God says. Son of God, for Jesus, is also used in Hebrews 20, 10, 29. Spirit of grace, the spirit of grace in 10, 29. And the sanctifying blood of the new covenant in Hebrews 10, 29 are all, and here's the warning, they are all dishonored in profound ways by those who would compromise this confession by return to the offering of animal sacrifices in the temple <clears throat> or for us to return to the practices and the identity of the old false self in order to perhaps gain the favor of our peers or avoid the shame and the cancellation of our desperately wicked culture. A culture that is slated for imminent destruction, by the way. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of God who avenges such insults against the spirit of grace, the blood that sanctifies that is the blood of the new covenant and his son. Our great archpriest, Jesus, the son of God, who has passed through the heavens, has also entered into the unimaginable glory of the region beyond the curtain that separates heaven's holy place from the holiest of all. Hebrews 6.20 there, Jesus is exalted and seated and crowned at the right hand of the incomprehensible majesty of God the Father. See him there. See Jesus there with the eyes of your heart. We must never forget that his exaltation, however, and this is so important. It's important to one who has made it his determination to know nothing apart from Jesus Christ and him crucified. This exaltation... was preceded by and is the result of his obedience even to the extent of the death of the cross. This is our best incentive to faithfulness. For after all, our faithfulness is an imitation of Jesus' faithfulness. And by imitation, I mean a participation in his faithfulness as a fruit of the eternal spirit who indwells us forever and who is with us now and in us now and produces the fruit called faithfulness. Galatians 5.22. We live by and in the sphere of the faithfulness of, guess who? The Son of God. Who loved us and gave himself for us. Who loved me and gave himself for me. Who loved you and gave himself for you. Gave himself as a sin offering to take away sin. Our sin.
Galatians 2.20, Hebrews 9.26. Our faithfulness, therefore, our faithfulness, almost sounds funny saying it, entails a perseverance that is nothing less than the perseverance of Jesus our Lord, which he demonstrated all the way to and through his endurance of the cross. 2 Thessalonians 3.5, Revelation 1.9, Revelation 3.10, Hebrews 12.2. Now in closing this increment 114, I want to quote another commentator on Hebrews who really did a marvelous job in more than one book on the shame and honor culture and the patron culture patron and sponsor culture that was around at the time of the writing of the Hebrews and how much that affected the writing of the Hebrews and how much that's used in the interpretation of many of the phrases used in Hebrews. His name is David A. De Silva, and he correctly states in his book on the socio-rhetorical aspects of Hebrews, he correctly states that the P.T.'s principal aim is to, quote, strengthen commitment to the Christian group among those who are wavering, who might themselves be moving toward defection, thus eroding the Christian plausibility structure further and jeopardizing exponentially the commitment of those who remain thereafter. Your faithfulness and my faithfulness as a participation in Jesus' faithfulness has exponential impact on others and on generations to follow as is demonstrated in Hebrews 11. And so I'll close with this. I wonder if that PT had any inkling that this homily would still be teaching and exhorting believers nearly 20 centuries later and thousands of miles away from its initial destination. Father, we thank you. We pray that you'll create in us a clean heart by what we've heard, that you'll renew in us a steadfast spirit so that we can hold fast the confession of Jesus as Lord and as the Son of God, so that we can hold fast the confession of Jesus, the Son of God, and so that by believing, we can experience in some meaningful measure and to some discernible degree the life of the coming age, the life of future world right now in the present. We ask for this in the name of Jesus, our Lord, in whose name we have that life. Amen.